A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this um, special Tisha B'Av episode about the Kishinev pogrom and its aftermath, Proper uh, context, uh, Tisha B'Av 2021, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So this special Tisha B'Av episode about the Kishinev program has been generously sponsored by a loyal listener of Jewish History Soundbites who wishes to remain anonymous, and uh, he wishes to express his appreciation for Jewish History Soundbites and all that you do to enrich the world with the story of our past. So thank you for that. And before we get to Kishinev, I just want to mention, again, it's uh, Tisha B'Av, so I talk about sad things. And uh, recent, just now, the, a couple of days ago, the passing of a great, great legend, a great uh, individual, Rabbi Yael Khan, uh, end of an era, literally, with a, a special a special man. Uh, he was the Chayzer of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the one who um, you know reviewed all the Ma'amorim, all the talks of the, by the Fabrengans of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Nachman Mendel Schneerson, and Rabbi El Khan had to remember and then reconstruct the long and complicated uh, Fabrengan Taira of the Rebbe on Shabbos and in Yantif when there was no recording or writing, four or five hour long uh, Fabrengans, and he had to repeat it exactly. And he definitely was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, expert on Chabad Hasidus, the Taira and the thought uh, of the movement. Uh, he was probably the biggest in the world, if not one of the biggest in the world. He was also the primary mashpia, the one who uh, taught Hasidus uh, to the young uh, students at the headquarters of the Taimchit Tamimim uh, Yeshiva Network at 770, um, at the main, the main branch. He was a, a, an incredible person. I remember him, actually, myself, when he would make his annual trip to uh, to Israel in honor of the Yud Tes Kislev celebrations every year, he was something to see and hear. He had an amazing energy, like a young man. He, for hours on end, for several nights in a row, he would just go on and on. He electrified the audience. I always also loved the way he rolled his R's. I can't even imitate it. It was amazing. It was exciting to to hear him, to listen to him. He was clear. It was fascinating. He would weave through the tapestry of Hasidus throughout the uh, Fabrengan. He also, on his trips to Israel, would meet with diverse 
dignitaries, rabbinic uh, dignitaries. He was invited by all. He was a very beloved figure. There were great rebbes who hosted him. He visited the Belzer Rebbe and others. He visited great rabbis, Rebbe Leib Steinman and others from all streams and stripes. He was very, very authentic. It was a privilege to have seen him those few times. I never met him personally, but saw him from afar. He was born in the Soviet Union in 1930. His father had studied in Taimchei uh, Tamimim in Lubavitch. Uh, and as a young child, they got out to Palestine. He studied in Taimchei Tamimim in Tel Aviv. And then he went to the United States just as the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe of the Rayats, uh, passed away. So he became a follower of his son-in-law, the, of course, the Lubavitch Rebbe. And in his capacity as the Choyzer, he also oversaw the editing and the publishing of the many Sfarim, which were based on the Rebbe's talks. He authored many books of his own. He never had children, so his memory may his memory be a blessing. It's just a short tribute. And now we go to the story, the infamous story of the Kishin of Pogrom and its aftermath. And I'll start off by saying that uh, several years ago, not long ago, 2015, what's that, uh, six years ago, I opened the news one day, and I see that there's a Jewish woman, her name was Goldie Steinberg, and she, the news item was saying how she was the oldest Jewish woman in the world, and she just passed away at the age of 114, um, and she was a survivor of the Kishin of Pogrom when she was about two and a half years old. Uh, she obviously didn't remember it, but she was a survivor of it. She was hidden by her parents in Kishinev during the pogrom, and she was you know, close to three years old. And she moved to the United States when she was in, in 1923, um, at the end of the Great Immigration. And it was just this amazing story about she was the last survivor of the Kishinev pogrom. She was the oldest Jewish woman in the world. It was about her life in New York, and yada, 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 yada. But the, the point that I was taking is I was taken aback that there was someone in 2015 that was a survivor of the Kishin of Pogrom. In 2015, which again, like I said, is not long, not long ago, we were already saying that the generation of Holocaust survivors is disappearing and we've got to interview them and hear their stories before, um, you know, before it's too late and, and so on and so forth. And here was a survivor from the Kishin of Pogrom, which is... 40 years before the Holocaust, uh, um, you know, it was, it was in, in the middle, you know, almost 40 years before it started and 40 years before, you know, it was in the middle of it. Uh, so it just gave me a sense to take a step back and to realize how recent the Kishinev program was. And it wasn't that long ago. It's not so distant. And now a ton of books have been written on, on this, on the Kishinev program. It's been subject to an enormous body of scholarly research. Um, the book that I'm most familiar with is recently written, fantastic. One of the best out there, maybe it's the best, who knows? It's hard to judge these things, but uh, Stephen Sipperstein, um, a great, wonderful historian in general, but specifically his uh, recent book on, uh, called Pogrom, Kishinev and the Tilt of History. So that's a highly recommended reading, and of course, there's many, many others out there and uh, therefore, it's um, an appropriate topic for Tisha B'Av, a day that we discuss tragedy. And uh, seemingly, it's a minor event. There was many pogroms in Russia. You know, it's, what's, the, what's special about Kishinev? So the 20th century, of course, was a century of many Jewish deaths, unfortunately. Uh, even in Russia itself, even before we get to the big stuff of the Holocaust, but even in Russia before that, way before that, um, there was later... 
pogroms in Russia that overshadowed Khrushchev in numbers. Uh, it was in, in, in quotes, uh, you know, I don't mean to say the word only, but I'm putting that in, in quotation marks um, because every, every Jewish life lost is a tremendous tragedy. So I don't mean only in, in, in to, to minimize it, but I'm saying that many, many more were killed uh, in the 1905 uh, failed revolt and in its aftermath. So we say that only, only, again, in quotation marks, 49 were killed in Kishinev. Doesn't sound like a huge number like we're used to later on in the bloody and terribly tragic 20th century where so many uh, Jewish lives were lost. You know, we move on to World War I and the Civil War following the revolution in Russia and the pogroms and the massacres, especially during the, in the Ukraine, in the aftermath of the revolution and, uh, and, and the Civil War. There was tens of thousands killed. So again, uh, you know, what, what, what's special about Kishinev? And of course, if we move on through the, like I said, the bloody 20th century in Palestine in the late 1920s and 30s, the Hebron Massacre, and then of course the Holocaust. Uh, you know, close to 6 million Jews are killed, and that overshadows everything. So as the 20th century progressed, the numbers get higher and higher, and the cost in Jewish blood in order to get sympathy grows quite steep. So we'll ask the question again, why is Kishinev, Kishinev special? And uh, so first of all, it launched the 20th century, that horrible and bloody century uh, for the Jewish people. This was the first famous pogrom in what was supposed to be the century of progress, the century of culture, of equal rights, and instead, we start off the century in 1903. It happens in April 1903, so it's early on in the 20th century. So it's kind of ominous for what was to come. This is what launches it. Uh, secondly, the impact that it had on the Jewish world is almost unmatched. This is actually the main story of the Kishinev pogrom. Not the pogrom itself, but actually the after effects that it has on the Jewish people. The legacy of the pogrom and the reactions that it generates across the Jewish world, that's really the story, and that's what I'm going to try to focus on. So the background leading up to the program, we have to understand what Russian Jewry is. At the turn of the century, it's the largest community in the world by far. Well over 5 million Jews living in the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Russian Empire. Remember, it's the Romanovs, an autocratic uh, form of government. And you have about, about half of, the world, of world Jewry, about 50% of world Jewry, give or take, residing in the Russian Empire. And it's a very dynamic and volatile environment. There's the radicalization of the youth. There's the slow modernization of Russia, which is lagging behind the rest of Europe. And there's no equal rights for, no emancipation, no equal rights for Jews in Russia, yet it's the only Jewish community in the world like that, pretty much. A couple of other smaller isolated examples. And it's a time of change. The youth are being radicalized. It's a time of a lot of internal changes in the Jewish community, a lot of move towards secularization and all the isms that are, a lot of nationalism, a lot of other things flying around the Jewish world. So it's a very, like I said, dynamic and volatile environment within the Jewish world, both because of external factors and internal factors, as well as the enormous size of the Russian Jewish community. It's also in the midst of the great immigration. Jews are moving primarily to the United States, but also to other places. So there's a lot going on in Russian Jewry at the time. And the Romanovs are no friends of the Jews. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in Russia. There's been pogroms from 1881 and on. So this is where we find ourselves in 1903, in the spring of 1903, 
And that's the general background. The specific background to this specific program, which breaks out on April 19th, 1903, and it goes on for two to three days. It goes 1920 to 21st. Actually, in the Russian Empire, they still use the Julian calendar. They did not use the Gregorian calendar yet. So it was the Julian calendar, it was April 6th, 7th, and 8th. But on the Gregorian calendar, it started on April 19th, which is also an interesting curiosity, coincidence, what we could call it, of Jewish history, because 40 years later to the day, on April 19th, 1943, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising breaks out, which is a very interesting coincidence, especially in light of the fact that one of the long-term effects of the Kishinev program was the fact that many, especially of the Zionist movement, their conclusion of Kishinev was that the Jews need to defend themselves. And here, 40 years later to the day, the uh, Warsaw Uprising, which was not a very successful defense, but that's another story, um, they, um, they, uh, it takes place. So fine, so that's another curiosity. So um, notice by the date that it's around Pesach time, of course, and what's more important for our story is that it's Easter time. Uh, it it broke, breaks out on Easter Sunday with a blood libel. There is, in leading up to this program, there's an anti-Semitic newspaper, very, very virulently anti-Semitic newspaper called the Bessarabian. Uh, Kishinev is, of course, the capital of Bessarabia uh, at the time, which is you know, a province in the Russian Empire. Today it's Moldova and the and the and Kishinev, which is today called something else, which I can't even pronounce, is uh, the, still the capital of Moldova. Um, but then it's part of Russia, and it's Bessarabia. Um, so the name of this this newspaper is Bessarabian, and he, the editor of the newspaper, um, starts this violent anti-Semitic rhetoric, death to the Jews, literally outright anti-Semitism, calling for violence, calling for death to the Jews, etc. All kinds of expressions of uh, you know very extreme and, and violent and that you know that type of rhetoric of course riles up the populace and there are two separate incidents of non-jewish children who had died in the vicinity and jews are now accused of using their blood for pesach which is an old and familiar but this is the 20th century and they're still doing it and unlike a decade later in 1912 where there was a whole trial with mendel Bayless in kiev here uh, at a later you know blood libel on the last ones here, it just erupted as a program. Following the Easter Sunday church services, um, you know, priests led the mob. You know, it's this mob that breaks out. Other newspapers had joined in with these insinuations that the Jews were guilty of this murder and blood libel and Pesach and all that. And it wasn't just this newspaper. It was other newspapers as well and, and priests in the churches. And then the mob breaks out. And anti-Semitism and the calls for violence leads to an explosion and a mob descends on the Jewish area of the city. Now, again, Kishinev is the capital. It's a major city. This is an urban center. It doesn't happen in some isolated place with a bunch of uh, peasants. This happens in the middle of a major, somewhat modern, relative to the Russian Empire, city. So it's an incredible situation. That's also one of the reasons that it achieves so much fame or infamy. It's because of where it happens in this major city with a major Jewish population. 49 are killed. We call it today in English a pogrom or a massacre. In Yiddish, they called it the Kishinever Shechita. The Shechita was the way they referred to it as a massacre. It injured hundreds, uh, some, some of them severely so. And the most horrific things took place. Babies, torturing babies, throwing them, torture, mutilation of bodies. It was a bloodthirsty mob. The descriptions, and there are many, many descriptions and testimonies of survivors 
are sometimes too harsh to hear. It wasn't just death and injury. It was how it was perpetrated with a sadism and a violence and all kinds of torturous things and stabbings and really horrific things to hear and read and, and confront. There was loads of property damage as well. 1,500 homes and stores are destroyed. Synagogues damaged. Torah scrolls burnt and destroyed. There was a big funeral. There's photographs of it afterwards to bury the Sifrei Torah. There was rape of Jewish women as well. There was a uh, the claims, and this became one of the major issues in the aftermath of the program, was the complicity of the police. The lack of immediate response, and they're allowing it to take place altogether, ignoring the warning signs, and there's all kinds of blames and accusations to the local police, to the local government, also to the national government, to the czarist government itself, at the federal level, at the, at the national level, are blamed for either supporting it or not taking action to stop it with different levels of evidence, either proving or disproving. And then a lot of what the scholarly discourse surrounds until today is was the czarist government, either at the local level or at the national level, to blame or not. That's a, a big, big story. But one indisputable fact is that the Russian media did not report on it. In the Russian press, it wasn't reported, and that says a lot as well. There was a subsequent police investigation, and uh, although a few were arrested and tried in a trial, and some of them were even sent to jail with either one or two year jail sentences, and a couple of them even got like a five year jail sentence, but that was it. It was not uh, a major investigation. The Russian, Russian ambassador to the United States justified it in financial terms, that the Jews were exploiting the peasants, and this is a natural peasant reaction, and he denied that it was anything specifically anti-Jewish because of their religion. He said the Jews have freedom of religion in Russia, and he also said that the Jews have the same protection as anyone else in Russia, and that the police apprehended the criminals and brought them to justice. In short, the government did not take responsibility nor apologize, and they rather played it down. An interesting development, once we're talking about the media in the United States, was the interest that the newspaper and media mogul William Randolph Hearst had in this program. He, he almost adopted it as a crusade. He dispatched a reporter to cover the story on site, was one of the first foreign journalists to come and actually cover the story on site and talk to survivors and see what happened there in Kishinev. And that's also another reason why Kishinev became so famous is because we're in the modern era now and because of the media and newspapers and international newspapers and reporters coming down, this is one of the first times that that actually takes place. So that, that uh, puts it on the world scene as well. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's mentioned by Theodore Roosevelt. It becomes very famous in, in, in throughout, uh, throughout the world. Another interesting development was the reaction of the Russian intelligentsia. Until Kishinev, in previous programs in the 1880s, the Russian intelligentsia was silent. And here, they weren't. People like Leo Tolstoy, Maxim Gorky, and others spoke, about, spoke out publicly, condemning the pogrom, and even outrightly blaming the Russian government, the Tsarist government, for allowing it to take place. So that, that's, on the other hand, a, a, a somewhat a, you know, a positive development. In many ways, this would be called a typical or even stereotypical pogrom. And it followed, unfortunately, unfortunately, tragically, a very similar pattern throughout the often tragic parts of Jewish history. So what makes it unique? Why is Kishinev different? We mentioned some of the things, but what made it really different and unique was the context where and when it took place at a very crucial time in Jewish history. And therefore it sparked a reaction that left reverberations throughout the Jewish world, which remain with us until this very day. And what I'm 
going to proceed to argue uh, is that is that the after effects of the program are with us in the Jewish world till today because of the reaction in the various parts of the Jewish world. The first, and again, my belief, uh, again, others may argue, this is a, a different, different opinions, I imagine, is, is this might be the biggest effect of the program, um, the, the, was immigration. Um, immigration is, is, again, one of the things that I'm you know, somewhat obsessed with. That it's, it's one of the biggest stories of the modern era. Some, one of the most overlooked, and yet it's one of the, pretty much the biggest, or one of the biggest stories of the Jews in the modern era is, is the population shifts, the demographic population shifts, immigration, emigration from their place of origin, and their immigration to the United States and other places. Um, the second Aliyah is spurred on to uh, Palestine at this time because of the Kishinev program. And this is the peak of the great immigration to the United States took place in the ensuing years because of Kishinev and later on the 1905 revolution. So immigration may have been the biggest effect of the program in its aftermath because this goads on hundreds of thousands of Jews in Russia to make the decision and say, we can no longer live in Russia under the Tsars. It's unsustainable. We cannot survive this way. And it's going to be impossible to continue. And this, this is, I guess, you know, kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back as far as many in Russian Jewry are concerned. And they say, we can't live here anymore. And immigration is the only solution. And this is when they start coming in greater, much, much greater droves to the United States. And, uh, in, and of course, in, in much more, smaller numbers to other countries as well, and in even tinier numbers, the second Aliyah to Palestine, but primarily the story, primarily to the stories of the United States. So that's that's one major effect, and possibly the biggest one of all. Um, in light of that, the, we see at this point the organization of the American Jewish community, and this also has a major effect. The or, American Jewish community starts to organize themselves because of Kishinev to lobby the United States government, to go to the media, to go to government offices. They start to organize themselves to fundraise on behalf of the victims. American Jewry was very disorganized, especially the immigrants, the Eastern European immigrants. German Jewry from the previous generation was more organized. But here, American Jewry, the critical mass of American Jewry, who were mostly recent immigrants themselves, they become organized, fundraising, lobbying. In many ways, this is a transformative experience for American Jewry. There becomes much more identification with the old country, uh, seeing themselves with a role of responsibility toward their, towards their brethren in the old country. And, and until this point, many of the immigrants were leaving the world behind. They were leaving on the other side of the Atlantic, the world behind. They want to cut themselves off. They're restarting their life in the United States. Kishinev changed that. And now there becomes this connection between U.S. and Russian Jewry. And this defines the connection and the relationship between U.S. and Russian Jewry for the remainder of the 20th century, which is something to think about, because we know about U.S. and Russian Jewry in the interwar period when Eastern European Jewry, not just Russian, we know about U.S. and Eastern European Jewry during the Holocaust, and then we know about the U.S. and Soviet Jewry in, in the post-war, during the Cold War. And to a certain extent, the, 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 the earliest stage and where that's born, that relationship is born, is Kishinev. Um, that's, that's another effect. If we move on further, we see the, the effect within Russian Jewry is the radicalization of the youth. And this radicalizes the youth. This 
pushes many to join revolutionary organizations underground. This pushes many to join in the 1905 revolution, which takes place shortly after. This pushes towards the rise of Jewish politics, the Bund, socialism, communism. Um, and uh, this, is, this is, again, very transformative, very long effects to Russian Jewry and later has you know, the rise of Jewish politics and revolutionary, revolutionaries and the Jewish people have an effect in the Russian Revolution, have an effect in Jews joining the Communist Party, have an effect in Polish-Jewish politics in the interwar period, which has developed in Russia during these times, which all obviously leads to, to politics in the state of Israel. So a lot of it has to do with the wake of Kishinev. Um, and then as far as Russian anti-Semitism, pogroms spread and with greater intensity because of Kishinev. It kind of like lets things loose. So that's another long-term effect that has. There's the reactions of the U.S. government in the West. There's also an outpouring of artistic expression in memorial of the victims. There's all kinds of art that's depicted. The famous uh, Jewish artist Shmuel Hershenberg put out several works of very haunting and powerful works of art, which he had already done even before that, uh, The Wandering Jew, which is his most famous piece, and others, Exile is because of Kishinev, and others. Israel Zangvil, who's a very prominent and outspoken and interesting fellow, he writes a play about an immigrant who comes to the United States in the wake of the Kishinev pogrom. Shol Chernikovsky and other poet, poets write these kind of eulogies in the form of poetry. Yasseler Rosenblatt, the great cantor composed and sang a song in the memory of the victims of Kishinev. And there are reports in the New York Times and other media uh, talking about the complicity of the police, and it gets all over. What I want to get to, which is the biggest story of all, uh, I, said, I already said the immigration might be, but maybe besides for immigration, but it, it's, it's a, you know, more to talk about. Immigration is just to state that as a fact, that it caused, the, you know, it caused more immigration. But here there's a real story here, is the effect that it has on the Zionist movement. And that's, that's a major story. Um, and that's, a, a, you know, it kind of, in many different ways. And I would say in three, in three primary ways, this affects the Zionist movement, which is kind of new. Um, you know, it's Chovet, seen lovers of Zionism around since the 1880s. Um, and political Zionism, Herzl, political Zionism is only from 1897. So it's only six years old. Now what happens, there's the very famous Jewish historian, the, the, the father of, of modern Jewish historiography, Shimon Dubnov. And he has this strong sense of history and already in Several years earlier, in 1890, 1891, he makes a call to the, excuse me, to the Jewish people in, in the Russian Empire and Eastern Europe to um, get a sense of history that could form a very, he, he believed that it would form their national identity. He believed that it was the future of the Jewish people with the, with the increasing secularization, so they needed to have a strong sense of history to retain Jewish identity. Uh, to change Jewish culture, Jewish language. So history is a major component of that. And he felt that we have to create our own mechanisms of preserving history. And he said we need zamlers, we need collectors of history, people to collect communal records and personal artifacts and, and all types of documentation because he says no one's going to do it for us. We don't have a, a country and a government who's preserving archives, so we need to do it ourselves. And he called on the masses, the common man, man and woman, of the Jewish people to preserve historical documentation at the personal level, at the family level, at the communal level, at the national level. 
And this was his his mission. This was his. Uh, this was he inspired the next generation of of historians to do that. And Yivo's kind of inspired like that in the next generation. Emmanuel Ringelblum and other. He he inspired an entire generation of of Jewish historians, and that was his philosophy of of Jews creating the the you know the preserving and cre- creating preserving the documentation of their own history. So this his sense of history. He's living in Odessa at the time among the this famous Odessa group of Jewish intellectuals, all the great Jewish writers and thinkers, everyone was down in Odessa in those days, which is also a great topic to talk about. And he sends a young man named Chaim Nachman Bialik, who's a young, aspiring writer and already very talented and recognized and becoming quite famous. And he sends him at the head of a delegation to go to Kishinev from Odessa and gather testimony uh, from survivors, from victims, from their families, from the Jews there, to watch the court proceedings, to go and see and just record all their impressions. That's, that's Dubnov sends him on this mission. So now Bialik spends the next five weeks in Kishinev. Five weeks, long time. And he sits there and he interviews victims and survivors and people and goes to the courts and goes and he sees and reports and he writes and writes and writes and writes his impression. And in the conclusion of that, and he sums it up in this incredible poem, this incredible burst of, of um, inspiration and talent, and he calls it Be'ir Haharega, and the city of death. And this is Bialik's assessment of the, of the Kishinev pogrom, and its publicity becomes all the Jewish... It comes to define the Kishinev. Bialik uh, literally put his stamp on it, and this, till today, and... It's, it's, it, this is the, the essence of, 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 of the collective memory of Kishinev is through Bialik's Be'ir Ha'arega, this in the city of death. He writes very critically, he writes about the perceived passivity of the Jewish victims. He accuses them of passivity. This is despite the fact that there were instances of self-defense, which he himself recorded in his own impressions of the testimony gathering, which, um, which I'll, I'll, I'll get to. Uh, but altogether, along with a very poignant description of the tragedies and, and what happened and the different you know, horrifying scenes that he saw and stories that he heard, and you know, in many ways, it was also very critical of the Jews. He mentioned Jews praying to God for salvation while their wives are being violated and things like that. It was a bit provocative for the time as well. But it became a rallying call. It may have had an impact on many Jewish youth joining revolutionary underground organizations to overthrow the Tsar. People who read his poem were inspired. It was very moving. He describes the feelings of helplessness, the murders. Very poetic and also a very accusatory tone. He struggles with, with God and relationship with God and praying and fellow Jews and the relationships between and among fellow Jews and he even talks about fundraising afterwards, you know, and all kinds of things go into there. Basically, he covers everything. It's quite long also. Very, very powerfully written and covers all the bases there. Um, he, he also wrote before he went, before his visit to Kishinev, he wrote Al Hashchita on the slaughter. But the focus over here is Be'ir Haharega, in the city of death, which he wrote in light of his visit, his long visit, and the impressions that he got and people he spoke to and the notes that he took. It was first published in the Jewish newspaper Hazman, the Jewish newspaper in St. Petersburg, and then in several more places, and it achieves immense popularity. Um, very close to its initial publication in Hebrew. Of course, Bialik primarily wrote in Hebrew, even though he wrote some in other languages as well. But uh, Vladimir Jabotinsky was also a young, rising 
star on the Zionist scene in Odessa. He actually was one of the only ones who actually grew up in Odessa and didn't move there, but Jabotinsky is also another story. And uh, he translates, so Jabotinsky translates it into Russian and publishes it in Russian with an introduction of his own. And then anyone who speaks Russian has access to it. So now it's in Hebrew and in Russian. While Peretz, the famous Yiddish writer, goes ahead and translates it and publishes it in Yiddish. Bialik actually did not like the translation of Peretz, so he himself translates it into Yiddish and publishes it. So now it's out for all the Yiddish crowd. In 1920, much, much later, it was translated into German and published there, and it becomes immensely popular and came to symbolize the entire pogrom. Much has been written on it, explanations of it. It is very studied, lots of scholarly and commentary work has been published on it. But what's interesting to note is the discrepancy between Be'ir HaHariga, the city of death, actual published poem, and then Bialik's notes from the gathering of testimonies. In other words, he took notes when he talks to these people, he interviews these people. You know, we talk about today we interview survivors, we interview this, we interview that. It essentially was invented by Dubnov. He did this by Kishinev. This is the first, again, the idea of interviewing survivors of a Jewish tragedy, which is so part of Jewish life today, unfortunately. So that also comes from Kishinev. This comes from, you know, Dubnov sending Bialik there. But in any, any, any event, Bialik um, interviews the uh, survivors, and he takes notes. And we have them. They exist, right? We, 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 we've seen them. You know, we, they're, they're published, they're read, they're studied. So there, he's much more sympathetic. The raw, hearing it from the survivors. And he there he describes the instances of self-defense. And there he's much more sympathetic to the victim's experience and their pain and everything. And he's much less accusatory, much less, you know, talking about their passivity and perceived passivity and, and stuff like that. So that's, that becomes a fascinating study of the message that Bialik is trying to convey. Because in the notes that he takes from the survivors, there's really one theme and message, just internalizing the tragedy and seeing it for what it is and for the whole scope of what it is, including the Jewish self-defense. And on the other hand, when he goes ahead and writes it up in this poetic way, which becomes the famous part and well-published and everyone knows it and Beer Hariga comes to define it, like I said, that kind of conveys a different message and the, the call to self-defense and the accusations of passivity and, and stuff like that. So that, that, that becomes a huge piece of Jewish history as well. That, you know, that that sense of you know that discrepancy and and what 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 message are you trying to convey and 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 how it fits into the rising Jewish nationalism and the nascent uh, Zionist movement and and what's that trying to develop vis-a-vis the uh, the the tragedies of Jewish history and the story of the Jews in the exile and the solutions to get out of Zarist anti-Semitism. So that's one aspect, and I think um, one of the m- most biggest stories here is is Bialik and Beir Harega and the effect it has. But another effect it has on the Zionist organization is what I mentioned, Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky's reaction is that the Jews need a self-defense. And, and he says the conclusion of, of, uh, of, of his conclusion from the Kishinev program is Jews need to be able to defend themselves. And there's this initial organization of Jewish self-defense leagues in Russia by Jabotinsky, but eventually, much later, becomes revision of Zionism. That's well, 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 much later on the horizon. This is still the young Jabotinsky figuring things out. And this would be a catalyst for the very idea of Jewish self-defense in the modern era. 
And Jewish self-defense in the modern era becomes a huge story of the 20th century in the ensuing decades, and, and of course in the state of Israel as it's expressed in an actual army. So that starts in Kishinev with Jabotinsky, with, with the self-defense, and so again, the impact until today. Um, so that's number two. Number three is another reaction uh, of, within the Zionist movement, also an important piece of history, is Herzl. Herzl's still around at this point. He's the head of the Zionist movement. It's his. He started it. And so what is Theodore Herzl's reaction? And his reaction is the Uganda proposal. And he says Jewish nationalism and all that is important, but the primary focus is to solve the problem of anti-Semitism and, and all, that, all that it brings with it by having, giving the Jews their own country. And what we need to do, this is an emergency, he says. He sees Kishinev and he says, now we have an existential threat. We have an emergency. We need to rescue the Jews in Eastern Europe from the immediate danger of anti-Semitism and of, from the Tsar. And therefore, it's not just about nationalism, what later becomes the Tzionet Tzion, the, the Zionists of Zion, ones who insist on that the Jewish state is to be founded only in the historic borders of the land of Israel. And Herzl says, but now we had Kishinev. We need to take anything we can get because we need a rescue. These people are getting killed. And he proposes at the 6th sixth, sixth, sixth Zionist Congress the Uganda proposal that maybe, which is really in Kenya, but whatever, that's a different story. And the story of the 6th Zionist Congress and the Uganda proposal is also a very interesting story, but it's in light of Kishinev. And is that we can, you know, have a state there and maybe one day we can move it to another place, but right now we need the immediate importance. And that's why people like Rabbi Yitzhak Yaakov Reines, the head of the Mizrahi, supports the Uganda proposal, because he also saw Kishinev, and he said, we need to rescue Jewish lives, and that's the immediate and most important part of, of Zionism, which can provide a solution to get out of anti-Semitism. And so therefore, the whole Uganda proposal, and then the opposition to the Uganda proposal, which is eventually voted down by the Tzionet, Tzion, they're the, they're the majority, the Zionists of Zion, that the only place they're going to take is in the historic land of Israel, and not in any other place. So that's that's a question of how the new nationalism, which direction is it going to go? What problem is it coming to solve? Is it coming to solve an existential threat, anti-Czarist anti-Semitism, or is it to create uh, you know a new nationalism uh, to create you know to, to to do something much bigger, with a bigger vision than that? Um, like I said, in the context of Zionism, it also spurs the second Aliyah, which is considered the most ideological of the Aliyahs, this is when Ben-Gurion, Ben-Svi, and many other future leaders of the Zionist movement move to the land of Israel. This is the establishment of a lot of the early colonies, later leading to the founding of the Kibbutz movement in Deganya in 1909, and then later post-World War I in Ein Harod, and other places. So the second Aliyah has a major impact on how the future uh, Jewish society, the Yishuv in, in Palestine is going to look, and then, of course, that has an effect politically on how the early years of the State of Israel are going to look. So again, that all happens, uh, is spurred because of the second Aliyah, which comes from Kishinev. So there's a lot going on. There's, you know, I'm looking also, and try to find what effect it had on traditional Jewry. What was their reaction? It's hard to find. It doesn't seem like there was much. Uh, the legendary rabbi of uh, later on, the re- legendary rabbi of Kishinev, who's a fascinating story, Rabbi Yudelet Cyrilson, who's 
longtime rabbi of Kishinev who someone hoped I want to get to him one day. He's a great story. If you want to, if you want to sponsor that, that's a great story. But he was only appointed, I, I know, if you think what was his reaction. He only came much later. He was only appointed the rabbi in Kishinev in 1908, five years after the pogroms. He's not part of the story. He wasn't there then. More than that, he, when he was appointed rabbi, it was after the position had not been filled for decades. There was no rabbi for Kishinev for many, many years. So at the time of the program, there was no rabbi of the town altogether. So what was uh, beyond that? What was the reaction in the greater Jewish world, in the, in as far as the rabbinical world or, or in the traditional world? I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't seem to be that much. It's hard, hard, to, hard to find. I don't know if it was silence or if there was, but just they didn't remain. That's, maybe it's a curiosity. It's something to talk about another time, about the reaction of the traditional Judaism to tragedies in the 20th century, which is different than what it used to be, and the reaction to the Crusades and to Spanish expulsion, Tachvetat, they had much, the traditional uh, Jewish community had much to say. They wrote about it, Kinnis, fast days. In the 20th century, tragedies, uh, you know, you see much less of that. So there could be these shifts within the traditional Jewish world as well, including the Holocaust, um, which is an interesting phenomenon and perhaps something to talk about at another time. So the, we have, there we have a, some, the summary of both the pogrom and the long-term legacy. Uh, so this, this is, a, uh, on one hand, what seemed to be a typical, or even uh, compared to much later, greater tragedies of the 20th century. So this was actually much smaller, but in the greater scope of things, in the context that it was, this terrible, sad tragedy had a very, very tremendous effect uh, over the 20th century in the Jewish world, whose reverberations are with us still today. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and you can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.